In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Hunter Mulcair. And this is a podcast about psychology and psychological therapy. I'm a psychologist working with children and adolescents. The majority of my experience and training is in responding to childhood trauma. And I'm a psychologist who works with adults, predominantly with medically unwell patients, such as those with cancer or who have survived a stroke. But I've also worked in a range of settings, including private practice and drug and alcohol. If you clicked on this pod, you know it's going to be about sexual assault. But nevertheless, a quick trigger warning. We're going to steer clear of discussing sexual assault itself, but we will talk about the issues around it. This means we'll be referring to common emotions and reactions people have to assault, as well as ways others respond upon hearing stories. This episode is a little different to the one we'd planned. We were going to spend episode 69 talking about sex, focusing on the good bits. But we are recording this in early March 2021, and the news coverage in Australia has been blanketed with stories of sexual assault by a staff member of a federal minister in parliament. The staff member in question was then given character references and quietly moved on. Subsequently, the Attorney General announced he has been accused of sexually assaulting a woman when he was a younger man, and he has taken leave but has not stood down, and the government so far is resisting calls for an inquiry to the allegations. Given this setting, the response by the federal government to these events and the awfulness of the media coverage, it didn't feel right to ignore what was happening, especially with the topic we'd planned. Both of us, as individuals and as therapists, were appalled with a lot of the commentary that's gone on this week. In chatting to others and our clients, it's clear these events have stirred up a lot, so we wanted to inject some facts and experiences as clinicians into the dialogue. The plan for this episode is to talk through some of the ways psychologists respond when our clients tell us about having been sexually assaulted or abused. We're going to start with a discussion on some of the reactions that people have had to the stories in the media, because I think that that is really just on the tip of everyone's tongue at the moment Mm -hmm. and experience. Then at about 15 and a half minutes, we will move on to discuss how psychologists respond when a client tells them that they've been sexually assaulted. Given our different backgrounds, we thought we'd go through a list of key issues and how each of us work with them when sexual assault or rape comes up. We aren't claiming to present a definitive guide, but what we want to do is to give some insight into what a therapist may focus on and what is important to do and what is important not to do as a therapist. And then at about 47 and a half minutes, we will finish with a chat about how to respond to a friend or family member who discloses sexual assault to you. So I I guess a bit of guidance around what to do and what not to do if this happens to someone you know in your personal life, but you're not trained as a therapist. The context of the therapy discussion will probably inform mostly that discussion. Mm -hmm. So at times it's going to be a heavy episode, but please stick with us as we think that insight into how therapists deal with these problems will be really, really useful. If this episode gets too difficult for you, then please, Amy and I definitely giving you permission to turn us off, okay? We don't want you to be listening and getting upset, Mm. right? So the way that Amy and I talk about this with our clients is that therapy needs to be at a Goldilocks level, right? Not too hot, not too cold, right? And uh, if it starts getting a bit too hot, and you're getting burned, turn us off. If you need to speak to someone about any of the issues raised in this episode, 
what we would like you to do is to call 1-800-RESPECT or Lifeline or the Centre Against Sexual Assault. We will put some details in the show notes. Or speak to a professional like your GP or if you have a therapist. But if you don't have a therapist, you can speak to your doctor, your GP, and you can access a psychologist directly with a referral from them. Before we talk about psychologists' responses to these type of disclosures, I'd like to open the episode with an acknowledgement of just how common these experiences are. 85% of women report they've been sexually harassed in adulthood, and around one in six women have been sexually assaulted since the age of 15. For children and teens, the rate of sexual abuse is around one in three girls and one in five boys. Most are not reported to the police, and of those that are, only 3% result in conviction. In recent weeks, the outrage and grief expressed by many women in response to the reports about abuse in Parliament feels like it's not so much about how could this happen, but how does this keep happening? How can people keep responding in such cruel and ignorant ways? Will anything actually change? In conversations with women around me and online, I've noticed a feeling of exhaustion underneath the anger and frustration. Exhaustion from raising these issues over and over again, from all of the emotional effort that goes into self-protection, advocacy, prevention of other people's behaviour. We want to talk about how to respond to people's disclosures, because those first responses matter. Being trusted with that information is often not a flippant decision, and honouring it is important. It's probably the most important job that you can do as a therapist, I think. Yeah, I agree. Uh, And it's a skill that I think I've learnt over time and I get better at mm. every week, every month, every year. Every time it happens, yeah. Yep. Yeah. I learn something new about what's the right way mm. and what's the most helpful way. Yeah. So we're going to start with common reactions to seeing and hearing these stories in the media. Amy has foreshadowed the exhaustion and the anger uh, and I've got to say I feel the same way. Uh But I'm just going to be intentionally gendered here and focus on women's reactions, okay? Now, some people will go, you know, why are you gendering it, right? The reason we're gendering it is that women are overwhelmingly the victims of sexual assault. So one in 25 adult males have been sexually assaulted versus one in six females. Mm. So statistically, it's a problem much more for women. Reporting of these events have been fairly prominent in the last couple of years. So this is not a new phenomena right and i mean it's been going back decades but i think in the recent you know for the last five years mm. i think and i think with the advent of social media the, this stuff is really and the me too movement and the and me all too movement yeah. has really brought it to the fore so i mean this was the christine blasey ford disclosure about brett kavanaugh and during the uh his nomination for the supreme court in the united states more recently in Australia, there was the George Pell case, who was an extremely senior member of the Vatican, the Catholic Church, and he was convicted on sexual assault of two schoolboys, and he was um, only to be appealed successfully on a technicality. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't actually found not guilty. But anyway, yeah. we won't go into that. So there is there is a history of this being coming up. And then I guess, what, I mean, what I was thinking about was there's two sets of things that have been in the media. First of all, there's the descriptions of the events themselves, mm-hmm. right? And and that they have happened, I think, is triggering, yeah. right? You know, at, you know the, the, the thing I said to somebody, it's like, how is it that a woman is not safe for being raped in Parliament House? Mm. Like, like Parliament House, man. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's bad enough. But then I, what has... You know, and I, th- and I was saying to Amy, and like, why we should 
why, why I thought that this was a good topic for us to cover was that the commentary and the reaction mm. by politicians and the, and those in the media has just been terrible. Mm. So uh, I'm going to play two clips here to exp- to illustrate the point. Skip forward if you don't want to get angry again. Mm-hmm. It's gonna, probably going to take about a minute. So the first one is the our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, talking about the alleged rape of Brittany Higgins in Parliament House. I said yesterday in the Parliament that we had to listen to Brittany. I have listened to Brittany. Jenny and I spoke last night and she said to me, you have to think about this as a father first. What would you want to happen if it were our girls? Jenny has a way of clarifying things, always has. The second is journalist Peter Van Olsen, who I, I had rated him a good commentator mm. up until this point. He uh, was also a good friend of the Attorney General mm. and didn't disclose this in a couple of the opinion pieces he wrote. Uh, so this is his reflection at the end of the ABC political show Insiders. Uh, at the macro level, uh, I couldn't be happier uh, that there is this shift that has occurred so that women are coming forward uh, and so that there is a move for change so that sexual abuse can somehow hopefully get better recognised uh, and reform of the system. At the micro level, though, uh, if it's someone you know uh, and if they claim that they are innocent, boy, it's a difficult issue. Okay, so Amy, let's... <laughs> Let's talk about some of the common reaction that women are having to media reports. And then I think what we should do is then talk about if this is going on for you, how can we cope with it? Mm. What are the main responses you've seen? The initial responses I saw were anger about the press coverage in particular. And that was everywhere. It was Twitter. It was at work. It was, you know, in my personal life, clients. It was across the board. And then what's followed that is a bit of that exhaustion that I mentioned before and then a whole bunch of kind of grief reactions Mm. of, you know, how is it that this is happening? How is it that um, men in our society don't always understand and come out with stuff like this? So so when you say the the stuff like this, the, 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 the lack of understanding. Lack of understanding, yeah. And a kind of closed view of things. Yeah. There hasn't been a lot of asking women how they feel. There's been a lot of um, mainly older white men talking on the media about what's gone on, but without then directing questions or anything like mm. that to women. Most of the commentary pieces I've seen in the early days in particular were all from men in that demographic. Yeah. And they're all talking about how they were upset yeah, that, that this is coming. Oh. Yeah, that they felt bad that someone they knew and yeah. respected was Ex- being accused. Extraordinarily frustrating. Yeah, and so I think I think there's kind of a dual thing of like not only do these things still happen and we all know that they happen, but that then how is it that society as a whole, everyone, isn't appalled and then actively moving to change? Mm. How is it that some people are kind of going, oh well, their story doesn't quite add up or. Mm. Oh well, how can we know what happened? It was between two people. Yeah, you know, well, you know, you know oh, they're on our side of the politics, and they've just got to write it out or whatever. Exactly, you know, that's that inertia, mm. and, and and so for me, I that that links to like a feeling of powerlessness, and then I think people get either enraged or very flat and mm. low. I was talking to a couple of people, a couple of women this week, and overwhelmed 
mm. I think was was the was the other emotion yeah. that I came across, which was it was very hard to escape, and that yeah. and that for some women, it's bringing things up for them mm. and, and bringing up things that perhaps they've never spoken about, and the word triggering gets mm. bandied around a lot these days, but this is actually triggering, mm. right? And so yeah, so I mean that's. Yeah. So, and I think there are a few components that are triggering. A part of it is what you mentioned about that the event itself have been described, yep. but they've been described in a fair amount of detail in the media as well. Yeah. And then it's also that a lot of people who've experienced sexual assault and have come forward or have made reports have then had these types of negative reactions to their disclosures. Mm. And so I think there's sort of a secondary traumatization that happens of mm. having people disbelieve your story. Yeah, yeah. And we'll get into that in our next section. Exactly. Just very quickly, you're feeling powerless, you're feeling overwhelmed, mm. you're feeling angry, you're feeling low with this social media reports. How can people manage that? How can we help with that? Mm. I think that there are a whole bunch of different things that you can do. One thing is having a break from the media um, I think sometimes people feel guilty about that because they feel like they're not keeping up with things mm. or they're not actively involved in it but actually it's so flooded everywhere that having a bit of a break from it or going you know I'm not going to look at social media in the evening for example or whenever your time for becoming more distressed mm. might be going I'm going to protect that space a little bit well I think yeah see I think I think probably like don't look at it at work because mm. you're yeah. trying to do work yeah. and then you won't have the mental capacity to yeah. manage it. So kind of carve it out rather than yeah. incidentally it coming up all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, everyone will have their own coping strategies, but I think you've got to go strip it back to basics really mm. and just, you know, go with the things like being around people who make you feel safe and simple things like eating your favorite food or making sure that you're getting you know as much sleep as you can those basic things of looking after yourself mm. that can take the temperature down a little bit yeah i mean look it sounds trite doesn't it mm. but you know the world isn't all all shit mm. and sometimes it's important to not only just remember that but actually go and actively activate the the non-shit parts of yeah. it <laughs> you and know what it, i mean yeah go, go on if the weather's nice go and have an ice cream after after work I don't know whatever and if there are people in your life who know about your experience then letting them know that this is pushing a button for you can be quite helpful because then if people notice that you're a bit off they can kind of step in or can distract you or whatever it might be you've got a bit more of a buffer yeah and I think it's just a process isn't it absolutely I guess the other thing I was going to say Amy was for some people it's about taking action Mm. right so the the phrase turning lemons into lemonade mm. right and which is a common one amongst w- when you work in trauma mm. to take turn something negative into a positive right and that's not to say that you know the lemons aren't lemons yeah they are lemons yeah and they are sour yeah. but i think for some people you know writing letters to politicians or you know seeking out help for the first time mm. around some of these issues whatever that is for you. There's a whole bunch of marches that are about to happen. A whole bunch of marches, that kind of stuff. You know, that that is healthy taking control, Mm. right? And so I guess it's about doing that at a pace that works for you. Mm. Absolutely. We're now going to talk about how we as clinicians go about responding to a person when they disclose they've been a victim of sexual assault, particularly when this is the first time they've ever talked to someone about it and they're talking about it in therapy. Given our backgrounds, we decided what we'd do is talk through some of the main things that we think are important to consider when this happens in therapy. 
the first one we want to touch on is emotionally, how do you respond to a client when this starts to come up? So I work with adults. So I guess what I do, it's just gently, gently, cautious, cautious. Mm. Uh, Maybe that seems obvious, but I think if you were watching me, uh, it would be a marked change from what I'm like Mm -hmm. as a therapist um, in terms of like wanting to help tease out what it is that someone is trying to say to me. You know, and I think that that gets a little bit at how adults can disclose uh, something in therapy. Mm. Something like this that they might not have talked about. They might have not thought about talking about. And they find themselves trusting a therapist or finding themselves in a place where they need to talk about it. Mm. Right. And and that they they find a safe harbor to talk about it. And I guess the metaphor I always, I think about, I was thinking about, in preparation for this was it's a little bit like delivering a baby Mm. you know there's and allowing someone to feel safe enough and not ask too many questions Mm -hmm. but then ask the right amount and the right ones at the right time at the right time Mm. and being very cautious about it and i guess communicating to somebody whatever you've got Mm. i can handle it Mm. Yeah. Like, I can hold this for you. Yeah. And and if you give it to me, I'm going to hold it for you. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's a skill that, like I was saying before, I've refined over time. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and, and you learn from your clients. Mm, yeah. You do. How about yeah. you? What comes to mind? Um, I think being very gentle and curious. I think that kids' stories of abuse are rarely... A coherent narrative i mean adults it's rare that it's coherent as well it kind of comes out in little bits and pieces but i think particularly with kids and teenagers there's sort of almost like dropping a fishing hook and seeing if you bite and so often the thing about kids who have been through this kind of stuff is that they're used to people jumping on stuff that they say that's a little bit odd they're quite hyper aware of your reaction and so i try to be sort of as genuine as I can. Mm. And when I say genuine, I don't mean, you know, breaking down into tears or anything like that. But if I feel sad about what they've said to me, I'm going to show mm. that my reaction is sad yeah. because they're great bullshit detectors. And if they pick up on a hint of me kind of putting something on, yeah. everything will shut down. And I think that gets back to owning your own emotion. Exactly. And I think with the, like, I'll hold what you've got, mm. but I will go. Oh wow, that's yeah. that's 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 big. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and then I think that kind of gets mm. into kind of a way of asking. So if I ask you some questions about it, or um, I'm just going to ask you, I'm just going to need to ask you some questions. Is that okay? Yeah. And I think that through the questions that you ask, you can communicate quite clearly a whole lot of a whole lot of stuff. Mm. So one of the questions I ask is is how many times has it happened mm. or was it was it just one time or was it more times than that yeah and it seems like a relatively innocuous question it's probably a fairly inhuman response because mm. i think some people you know, out in the real world would just be like oh my gosh this happened to you yeah but i think for a therapist you know i'm communicating i can hear more mm. if if there is more yeah also for women who've had it happen to them just the one time Mm. for them there's actually a sense of relief when they say no just the one time Mm. you know so i think 
it can it can help and i you know i think in a lot of the question asking i do is around there's an assessment component to it but there's also a communicating a mindset around around stuff mm. that i think is beneficial or therapeutic yeah i get what sense. you mean i think probably like that's not a question that i would tend to ask early on no and it tends to be in in terms of my assessment brain coming in then often with young people i need to know about their safety now mm. and so often it's a real balancing act between i really want to hear this story and i really want to hear what you want to tell me yeah you need to deliver the baby yeah, yeah. but i also internally i'm going well i can't let them walk out of the room not knowing whether they're going somewhere that's going to be unsafe or where other kids are unsafe yep. because in australia psychologists have a and actually all adults yeah, in australia adults yep. have a legal responsibility to report suspected sexual abuse of children and teenagers so there's sort of this dual thing going on in my head mm -hmm. and i think with kids often it's if I can just get a couple of basic things like about where they're frightened or who they're frightened of, things like that can help with that without me actually having to go, okay, what is it that happened and when mm. did it happen, all of those kind of things. I think the other thing is in asking questions that I, after that initial, I get how difficult it was for you to tell me this, that then it's like, well, I have a bunch of things that I would like to ask you, but it's entirely on your mm. terms. Mm -hmm. And that it doesn't have to be in that session, it doesn't have to be in the next session, but something that I'm going to return to to check in whether you want to talk about it. So mm. I'm kind of inviting them to talk about it and telling them that I'm still going to be here next time as well with that. Yeah. I'm not going to leave because you've told me this thing. Yeah. And you can keep coming back and telling me bits and that's going to be okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that kind of ties in with one of the things I have to do in my role, mm. in, in the roles that I've currently in or have been in the last couple of years, is I often will only see patients sometimes it's just once mm. uh, or, of times or you know, so. three or four times now. Yeah. Trauma therapy is long-term therapy. Mm. And when we say long-term therapy, it can be, uh, you know, it's more than six months. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It could be several years yeah. if you're really going to nut something out. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and not to say that it doesn't happen faster than that. It mm. can definitely do that. But the nature of it is it's, it's more complicated. Work. Especially if it's something that's happened in the past a fair, fair distance. Yeah. Um, there's a whole bunch of factors that play into how long it takes, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean that's a discussion it's for not a pod, but yeah, the, so it's not a one session away you go kind of. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you look. I've certainly had conversations with people where they've disclosed something in first or second session, mm -hmm. and the power of that has been yeah in, extraordinary. Made a big difference. Um, so, so I mean, I think. So in my head, like I have a juggling act of, so how long have I got this person for mm. in the session and am I likely to see them again? And if there's opportunity to see them again, trying to set it up so that they will feel comfortable coming and seeing me again. Mm. Because it, quite naturally, you might disclose something to somebody, a therapist, mm. and then go, I'm not going to see them again. Yeah. And I totally get that, yeah. right? So, you know, it's the, the sort of an interesting thing of like how how much do you want to unpack with mm. somebody? Because you, I guess I'll ask you the question, at the end of a session where someone has disclosed this, mm. where do you want them to be? Yeah. I want them to feel safe to leave the room. Yeah. I 
want them to understand what could happen next in terms of the next time seeing me or um, what they might feel when they go home. Yep. I kind of want to make it feel as contained as, as it possibly can so that they're not leaving worrying about those things or not leaving in a mess and feeling like they can't contain things in the car ride home because yeah. it's been too distressing, which is a tricky thing to do. I mean, it, it varies a lot. Some people yes. disclose and then become almost too calm. Yeah. Um, and whereas other people will become really distressed. So it's yeah. sort of juggling y- that. Yeah, it's interesting what you say. Yeah, so because I think my mind has always been around having them leave so they're feeling emotionally safe, mm. right? You know, I work with adults, so it's a little bit different. Yeah. But, you know, so basically, so you're not going, well, oh, it's 59 yeah. minutes and out the door and they're, you know, they're in the middle of telling their story mm. and emotionally very raw. Mm. Don't do that. No. <laughs> um, so, you know, so I think that that's it. But what is it the patients worry about post-session? Because I could probably think of a couple, but mm. what do you reckon? Uh, I think... I think this is for everybody, but particularly... So kids and teens are particularly focused on themselves. It's just part of development. But they also are focused on the fact that they must have done something wrong and that by telling us something wrong and it means something wrong about them. Yeah. And, you know, that's a common experience lifelong, but particularly for kids and teens, it's kind of like, well, I've told this person essentially that I'm a bad kid because this thing has happened. Yeah. That's how they kind of interpret it. So a lot of what I'll do is I'll ask them whether there's anything that they want to check in with me about. And pretty much universally, they'll say, they'll pause for a really long time. (laughs) And then they'll pause for a while and then they'll say no. And then usually what I'll do is say, well, can I tell you some things that I often say to kids before they leave after they've told me something like this? Because there might be a little part of you that's kind of like, I'm worried about this thing. And it doesn't come up until you're in the car. Yeah. And they always agree to that. And then I go through a list of things. So I, I usually say something about not judging them and not thinking that it's their fault mm-hmm. and not thinking that it's okay or fair, mm. that this thing, it, it's not okay. And there's nothing that, you know, that I can't take that away, mm. but that I want to be with them to help them get through it. Yeah. Um, I tend to emphasize that a lot of people worry on the way home that they've said too much that they shouldn't have told that they're going to get into trouble all of those kind of things and normalize that Mm -hmm. um the teenagers in particular worry that i'll judge them yeah and so kind of going like no i don't feel any judgment towards you and really emphasizing that therapeutic connection like yeah but actually i think you're pretty awesome and it's really great and like it's really brave that you've told me this information. Yeah, the mindset that I have when I sit with a woman who has been sexually assaulted and raped or raped and they're talking to me mm. is that they did something right to survive. Mm. Yeah. That that some part of their reaction or that their reaction helped them survive. Yeah. And I guess that that mindset's really really important, mm. I think, because it it a lot of what can happen in an event like a trauma is that our body can uh, freeze. Mm. Uh, you know, we 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 don't fight, we don't we don't flight, we don't run away, yeah. um, and we don't react in the way that we want to, mm. or that or that later on we understand. Yeah. And so, there's a lot of people have guilt 
or mm. shame about that. And they go, you know, maybe I liked it, or, or maybe that, you know, you know, you know, what was wrong with me that I didn't fight back? Mm. I didn't or, do enough. I didn't do enough. Or yeah. and and I guess also the other things of like, well, you know, why did I let myself do this? Mm. You know, well, why did I let myself be exposed? Do you know why did I walk home that way rather mm. than this way or something? You know, all mm. the kinds of things that, um, you know, if you drop your phone. Yeah. And you break the screen. You go, oh, you know, why did I do this, right? So, But also all of those things that a perpetrator of sexual violence will often say to the person at the time. Yeah, exactly. Or afterwards or around that time. And so it kind of, I doubt these things about myself and you're saying these things about me, therefore, mm. does that mean that it's more likely that they're true? Like yeah. it kind of... It's a double whammy. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just actually the physical assault, but there's like the cognitive mm. belief systems about ourselves as individuals yeah. gets, I can say, assaulted really. Well, yeah. And and twisted, twisted, and 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 to the point at which people doubt doubt their mm. worth and, and and feel guilty and feel shameful, mm. and all those kinds of things. And so I think communicating to somebody like no, no, like if if you're here you've done something mm. right you're initially you're, you're sort of introducing a mindset to somebody and saying look this is a different way of thinking about this mm. that this event this this event was awful but the fact that you're here alive telling me about it means you know, that you survived it you got through yeah, yeah yeah and that's really really important and i think what's interesting as you're talking about that is that not initially when say there'll be times when I have to tell parents of teenagers or whatever that this has happened. But as we do family work, that's often something that needs to be explained to the parents when you're working with kids or teenagers, because it's kind of like, well, why is it that they're still, you know, shutting off or punching people when they come too close or whatever? Mm -hmm. And you're kind of like, it's all of those survival systems are all at play. And you explain that same thing to them. You're just explaining it to a family member rather than to the kid themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, probably even explaining to the family member in front of the kid would be yep. beneficial for yep. the... For and I explain it in kid the language to the kid and the same language as you to the adult. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Well, that's yeah. it. I mean, and if you if you want to hear more about our about fight, flight, freeze, mm. dissociation, listen to our dissociative identity pod. Yeah. We keep coming back to it. Why is emotional validation so important for a victim of sexual assault? Mm-hmm. I think a big part of it is that that event is invalidating and the message of that event is what you want doesn't matter. And so having someone say, actually, you being hurt by this and this happening definitely matters. Like it matters to me, it matters to you, it's not okay. There's something powerful about that, mm. about conveying that. Yeah. I also think it's it's really hard to express something that you're ashamed about if the person across from you isn't validating your emotions mm. or isn't actually there with you yeah because otherwise that you it can feel that separation you can mm. kind of feel that are they judging me all of that kind of mm. thing and that really limits any sort of movement yeah um oh, it limits it stops it yeah, yeah you know and i think that that's why the comments by the prime minister comments yeah. by the attorney general comments by just so many people have been invalidating and mm. I don't think that they have any understanding of just how damaging that is. No. And it ties into what we were just talking about, about that kind of narrative that you might have been told at the time or that you would tell yourself. Yeah. It, it's those same things, the broader public saying those things, yeah. then really hits it, it re- the core. reinforces it. Yeah, exactly. Like, so I remember the first case that I had where I had a, 
a patient she told me about, you know, something that happened to her and then she'd told a family member and the family member had gone, you know, what you, that didn't happen or, mm. or, you know, that's nothing. I think it was that that's nothing, mm. you know. And they were young and they didn't communicate it clearly because they were young and so the you could imagine how that confluence of things kind of comes together and then that had caused this really big problem. Mm. And I remember my clinical supervisor at the time saying, many people can survive an assault mm. and then have a, a supportive reaction from those around them. Yeah. And that can that is the most important thing. Mm. And that, it's a real buffer to having those. Yeah. And, 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 and my supervisor, she made the point of saying, you know, that invalidating response mm. is as big a deal in many cases, as the assault itself. Exactly. Because it, that's the thing that cements mm. cements everything, yeah. the, all those negative thoughts, mm. feelings, beliefs about ourselves. And it isolates someone, makes them feel separate and like they're on their own in it. Mm. That then just gives it even more space for those thoughts and feelings to grow. Yeah. Because no one's going, hang on a minute, what do you mean you think yada 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 about yourself? There's no challenging, there's no warmth or anything and they have to deal with everything alone yeah yeah exactly which is i think why more than anything else the validating and saying that i often say stuff about you know thank you for telling me i know that it was hard for you to share that Mm. even validating that that it was hard to disclose as well as the event Mm. it's like every step of the way needs validating for it to then feel safe to continue. Yeah. In my current role, you know, the, the, the statement I say is, I, I would like to go on this journey with you and I'm sorry that I can't mm. because, you know, the circumstances around the therapy contact. And then Means my, that you have to refer them out to Yeah, I have else. to refer them out or I have to provide them some self-help material and, mm. and trust that they will make a decision around it. But, you know, I communicate. It's like, I would, I would like to see this through. Yeah. Because I've seen it go through. Yeah. I've seen how helpful it can be for people. Mm. And, you know, so I think there's that. What's interesting is you have to be so boundaried. Yeah. As a, as a therapist, you know, you have to watch what you are doing. You have to watch mm. your reaction. You have to respond in the right way. Mm. You know, careful, natural, but yep. planned way. Yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting. It is. Interesting juggle. And I think there are some therapists who are more or less comfortable with that as they come through for a whole bunch of different reasons that it can, that there are some people who will take a really long time if you're a therapist listening to actually get that response down that feels natural to you and doesn't feel like you're saying something trite or that it doesn't Mm. quite fit. It's, it's not an easy, easy thing to do. No. What, before we get to what not to do, (laughs) right. What are the key pieces of information you want to convey to someone when they disclose to you for the first time? Hmm. I think a real basic one is that it's not okay what's happened to them. And that, you know, it's not something minor. It's not something stupid. It's, you know, a lot of teenagers will do a, oh, this thing happened, but it was no big deal to sort of test the waters and see how you'll respond. Mm. And so I think for me, a lot of the time is kind of like, actually I can tell how distressed you are by it and I know like I can tell why like it's a big deal that this thing has happened Mm. I think something about conveying that I'll stick with them through it because I do have the opportunity to do that and that I won't disappear because that is also the big thing for kids and teens is I've told you this thing and then you're just gonna vanish yeah yeah you're not gonna want to spend time with me anymore yeah and that gets back to trust right exactly so it's kind of Someone's like this violated is... their trust and you're 
repairing it. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of what what I do is about that. I'm going to be here. We're going to take it at your pace. And I tend to convey something about that I know about this stuff Mm. and that you're not the first person who's told me this stuff and that actually I've got some ideas about how we can start to help you feel a bit safer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sort of like a, I can, I can handle this. Yeah. I'm with you. But also I know about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think my go-to things I kind of mentally want to check off are explaining to them about what some of the common emotions are. Mm. So guilt, shame, disgust, embarrassment, and questioning themselves. And I think normalizing that, I think I've got a handout that I use Mm. that I you know, can print out for people saying, you know, these are common reactions because I think tying that all together yeah. can be really, really helpful for mm. somebody to say, no, no, all of these things are a reaction to that yeah. and they're emotional reactions that are not you. Mm. Separating out from somebody. Yeah. And I think that that's therapeutic in of itself. Um, it's funny because what's coming into my head is like, you know, we're both essentially doing the same thing but the focus tends to be different based on our client groups yeah yeah, yeah. you know kids are worried are thinking they're the only ones and this has never happened to anyone else in the history of time and that's what they need normalized adults know that it's happened to other people but they need it normalized that their reaction is okay Mm. it's yeah 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 definitely that's that's really it's a different level of understanding of what's happened but then but then the amount of times i've had a discussion amy with with an adult Mm. and say no no like your this is a trauma reaction, like yeah. or what's happened to you is you were you were sexually assaulted, you were raped, and that all of these things that have happened to you are a result of that. Mm. And like I've heard this before, yeah. and it, it profoundly relieving for some people because mm. they're just like, oh my god, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, the the other thing I you know like I always start to think about PTSD, post traumatic stress mm. disorder symptoms. Yeah. So I often ask I'll ask about like nightmares and flashbacks mm. and things like that, but probably cursory. Yeah. Like, so I just want to get a broad sketch because mm. I, I kind of, I'm like, oh gosh, like, you know, and then maybe later on you might go back and do a, yeah. a, a you might go back through the criteria or do a proper assessment, mm. you know, down the track yeah. once you've built some trust and rapport and, and whatnot. But I think the one thing I think about though is I will say, you know, do these do these thoughts come up a lot? Mm. And even if they say, oh, no, they don't, I will explain to them about sort of the, the I was going to say neurobiology, that's probably not the right term, but like what happens with memory mm. when we're traumatized. Yeah. So That's the right term. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. so, <laughs> so it was like, yeah. Mentally going through it. Yeah. Um, so I guess guess what I'm talking about there for, for people who don't know what I'm talking about is that we can have images mm. or we can think a lot about particular events that have happened when we've been in a traumatic, uh, high-stress moment. And the reason that that sticks in your head is because of the way our memory is processed. Mm. So we have two hippocampus mm-hmm. or hippocampi. Uh, and they convert short-term memory into long-term memory. So if you cut those out of your brain, then yeah. you live just in the present and mm. you never retain any new memory. Every student who's done undergraduate <laughs> psychology will have learned about the case of HM. Yeah. That's my initials. Yeah. It's just so Sense weird. stuck. Anyway, so, and what happens when we are being assaulted mm. is that we get flooded with adrenaline, which is the fight, flight, or freeze mm. neurotransmitter. Is it a neurotransmitter? It's a hormone. Um, hormone. And, and what happens 
is when we're flooded with adrenaline is that that alters the processing in the hippocampus. So basically, the, the mem- some of the memories that should normally just get filed from short-term memory into long-term memory, they kind of stay open. Mm. So the, the way I think about it in a modern example is that you have got Word on your computer and you're trying to shut down your computer mm. But Word is not saving the document and the document's staying open, Yeah. right? And so the computer's kind of stuck, mm. right? And so this memory is kind of stuck. And so you can have a traumatic memory of an event mm. that kind of you can't kind of get rid of. Yeah. And that can be very distressing or, you know, can kind of, you go, you know, why do I always think about this and blah, 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 blah and uh, why does this always come up? Mm. So I think that that can be a useful piece of information for some people, mm. not every person, but... People who are feeling stuck. Yeah. Yeah. How do you explain trauma therapy? Or do you explain it in that session? Actually, probably the better question is, do you explain trauma therapy to someone in that session? I ask if they want to know. Yeah. Usually it's, okay, so you've told me about this thing and we can do a whole bunch of, there are a whole bunch of different options about how we might work with it if that's something you'd like to do. I can tell you about it now, but it's pretty big that we've had this conversation. Mm. So would you like me to tell you about it next time or do you want a couple of little bits and pieces? And every now and then someone will go, I want to know bits and pieces or what do you mean there are options or whatever it might be. But most of the time they kind of go, can you tell me about it next time? Yeah. And and actually, you know, like I think you probably, if I was going to embark on quote unquote trauma therapy, Mm. the process for me would be, having them come back, work on some stuff like day-to-day, mm. how they're going, what's going on, see how they went post a disclosure, then kind of revisit and say, like, I would maybe like to do a more thorough assessment yeah. if you're up for that. You could imagine that a thorough assessment is could be potentially distressing for mm. somebody. And then if and so if they're up for that, then you might then kind of start to think about, all right, well, and they come up with PTSD, you might go, okay, let's do trauma. Yeah. That would be a structured way of doing it. Yeah. Um, and a so lot like, of time what happens is that after the first disclosure they need, the young people that I see need some strategies to kind of buffer them to get to the point of us doing more of an assessment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's where some basic strategies about regulating themselves actually come in before we even get to that so yeah. that I know that they've got those skills before I ask any other questions. It's yeah. kind of like then it's easier to go do that thing while we're talking then going let's think of something in the moment that's going to help you yeah. settle yeah i mean yeah i think at the end of that session it might be like so what are you going to do to look after yourself this week yeah or how can you do that you know so like how to so I, the way i think about this stuff is, is that we have an arousal level yeah and disclosing will rise that arousal level we need mm. to bring that down uh yeah yeah, yeah. so i mean when, Let's get on to what not to do as a therapist. <laughs> so I've, I've got a laundry list. Oh, me too. <laughs> um, but I think the first one that I think a lot of therapists make the mistake of is mm. going too hard, too fast. Yeah. So that is asking too many questions mm-hmm. and not going at the pace of the client. Yeah. Going, oh, okay, they've got this thing. I've read about this thing. They've got, I've read about trauma. Yeah. So I need to ask them all about what happened. Mm. Like yeah probably not yeah it's good to ask questions but needs to be at the right pace yeah i think the one that i hear complaints about most often from clients and from you know people i've met who have seen therapists for trauma the one that seems to really stick is the therapist getting upset about your story yeah it's the, the therapist crying the therapist crying 
yeah the therapist freaking out about not knowing what to do when it's kids or teenagers as well not looking like they're in control of their own shit (laughs) yeah is it's then kind of like well i couldn't tell them anything else again like that no like i mean if you think about like if you tell somebody about something that's happened to you and realistically if someone is disclosing some like a trauma they're not mm. going to tell you all the all of the bad bits no they're going to tell you at like the preview yeah um and if that person breaks down starts crying mm. the therapist so two of your therapists don't cry mm. in those moments yeah the, the my pet peeve is that are you the therapist told me all about her yes or his trauma yeah if you've got your own trauma history and you're a therapist mm. do not tell your clients yeah it's inappropriate. Yeah. If you are doing that, seek out some supervision. Mm. Yeah. A good thing to discuss in supervision. Definitely. Why is it bad? Because we see it in goodwill hunting, right? Yeah. In goodwill hunting, <laughs> right? He discloses his own history of mm. trauma. Yeah. I mean, we've discussed this before in the pod. I think there are, there are a few reasons why. One is then it, it flips it to being about about the therapist, not about the client and where they're at. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel validating. It just feels like, hang on, we're now talking about you as well. The other thing is, is that quite often you see people with trauma who have caring roles in their lives and who have had to care. And that's the same with kids and teenagers. You see them who have had to look after a parent or a sibling or whatever. And as soon as they see someone else's distress, it switches off their own emotions and they launch into caring for that person. And you might think, how can a... How can a kid do that? But oh, easy. yeah, easy to Adults flip it around it and then to close it off and then to never bring it up again or to not want to come back. Yeah, I mean, and that serves the function of protecting them from having to talk about yeah. the worst things in their life. Absolutely. So, which you know it's makes perfect control. Sense. Yeah, but I think I think that is one of the damaging things that can happen. Yeah, and you can I can understand where that has come from from someone who perhaps hasn't contained their own history before then yeah. having like it's it's not a and something it's a blaming and, and some things can get activated exactly you know, therapy yeah. can be emotionally it's difficult to be on top of everything all the time blah yeah. blah blah. but That's true. learning how to contain that and work through it in supervision and to not do that is really important it's one of those don't do this like yeah, don't have that, an affair with your client yeah that it fits into those kind of don't yeah exactly <laughs> yeah and i think i think the other one is don't uh, sort of ties in with my first point but like don't rush into we need to do a trauma therapy protocol yeah, yeah. like I, like i had a patient who'd had a history of lots of trauma mm. and she was pretty keen on not talking about it yeah and you got to respect that mm. and you know so we did other work mm. and you know it, my work with her was i guess what you call trauma informed like yeah. like you I knew, knew it was there i knew it was there and i knew how to, and i knew that if it came up i knew you know we had an agreement essentially around that it wasn't about unpacking it because mm. this person wasn't ready yeah and and may never be ready mm. and, and that's okay and that is actually okay yeah. and i think as a therapist you have to sit with that yeah and exactly. go well you know just because it says in a protocol, evidence-based protocol that mm. you do these things and things get better doesn't mean that it's good for the, the client. No. Uh, no. And I, them having control is so important in the very <laughs> nature of doing anything trauma-informed or whatever so that you're not forcing them to do things that they don't want to do. It seems straightforward to say that, but I think it's it's worth reinforcing that it's about what they need. Yeah. Yeah. So final section, mm. how should you respond 
if a family member or a friend tells you that they've been sexually assaulted mm-hmm. or that they were raped. Yeah. And I guess in this instance, thinking about when someone's telling you and they're sober. Yes. So they're not drunk or they're not affected by drugs. Yeah. They're not just blurting it out. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, the, so the reason, so and, and, and not to say that those disclosures don't count, they definitely do count, mm-hmm. but when someone's inhibitions are affected by a substance, that's a very different it's a different type of disclosure. Different type of disclosure. So I guess when someone's come to tell you or is telling you, you know, whether that's they've written a letter, mm. they're telling you face to face, they're telling you an email, whatever. Mm. What do you, let's just go through a couple of pointers yeah. of what's important to do, not to do. What do you reckon? I think the first thing is an acknowledgement that like we spoke about how in therapy people tend to, well, there can be times when it just sort of comes out. Mm. Uh, often it's a thought through thing when someone wants to tell a friend or a family member. Yeah, it's a yeah. I need this person to know. Yeah, versus I think in therapy sometimes it can it can come out like an avalanche or yeah. a, uh, oops, an, oh oh jeez, yeah. you know, and they look surprised that yeah. they've raised it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Whereas I think with friends and family members, often it's a I need this person to know or I need help with this thing or whatever it might be. It's mm. kind of got a deliberate element to it. And part of that means that they've probably thought through how they want to say it and what they want to say. And so giving time to people to talk and being with them and not pushing. Yeah. Um, you know, you a little bit like the, the therapist side of things. If you can sort of sit with how they're feeling and not become completely overwhelmed with your own emotions, that's great. It's a lot harder when it's someone that you care about Mm. who's telling you this. But I think a lot of what clients say is, I tried to tell so-and-so and they got upset when I brought up the topic and started wanting to go and punch that person or whatever it was and I didn't feel like I could keep going. So Mm. I think sitting with them and even if you don't know what to say, saying, I don't know what to say. Yeah, you took my my comment, Amy. (laughs) Like I was going to say, the the most powerful thing you can ever, ever do is say to somebody, look, I don't know what to say. Mm. And and I remember... I remember someone was when I was in undergraduate psych, mm. a person disclosed they'd got uh, HIV mm. and it came out and I, and I, and there was two of us there and I, and I said that to yeah. that person and the other person watching me said, said that was, she was like, wow, that was the, that was the best thing mm. I've heard anyone say, <laughs> you know, because it was such a, it just helped with the with the with the moment yeah. because then the sitting per- with the silence or sitting with the well, well then the person said i need to do this yeah right so and i think also so you like i guess we i always bang on about owning your own emotion mm. right i apparently don't have uh poker face, poker face. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so i've just learned to kind of just sit with oh, well this is this is my reaction so i'm yeah. just have to own it so i think that that's really important and i think and just kind of going wow like i'm really upset or i'm really angry or Geez, I really didn't expect you to tell me this today. Yeah, uh, I'm not quite sure I know what to say. Yeah, I think that's that's enough. Yeah, right. Yeah. Don't feel you have to do any more than that. No, and but, I think there's there's something powerful about just being there. Yeah, and about keeping whatever that connection is going. And 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 also maybe mm. even you can just ask. So maybe silly question, but what did you what did you want my reaction to be today, or mm. or w- what do you want me to do? Yeah. Right, and I think validation mm. is the key. Yeah, it's the Don't, same with the therapy side of things. Like, of like so, like it's yeah. like if you want to ask questions, or if you're not quite sure about their story, or whatever it is, mm. there will be a time at which you can follow it yep. up, sit on it, and listen and hear the story out. Yeah, right. 
and be with them. Mm. Okay. I think the thing that goes with that is also, you know, the same worry that kids and teens have afterwards, I think comes up more interpersonally between friends or family members of wanting reassurance the next day, the next week, whatever, that that person is still there and they haven't run off. Yeah. So I think checking in, not in a like, oh my God, are you okay? kind of a message the next day or whenever it might be but kind of just a high touching base kind of message can be can be good yeah because i think there's often a lot of fear around that of kind of like i've said too much i shouldn't have told Mm. that person who are they going to tell oh my god what's going to happen yeah yeah Yeah. i mean if you want to be structured about it say i'm going to call you tomorrow i'm just gonna i'm gonna say hi i'm not gonna actually ask you anything but i'm just gonna call you and just say hi yeah if the person is up for it Mm. i would strongly recommend giving them a hug yeah now <laughs> depending if, on your relationship and if they're up for it and all that sort of yeah thing. like you know like so obviously talking about these things can be upsetting activating personal boundaries uh you know someone who's distressed again it's not goodwill hunting don't <laughs> just go hugging someone who's no. distressed who's been traumatized yeah but when things have calmed saying, you know, would you like a hug or yeah. could I give you a hug? Because when someone's been traumatized, they have been, their trust has been violated mm. and the way to heal that is to rebuild the trust. Yeah. Let's wrap up. Yeah. So just a reminder, if any of the stuff we've talked about has been upsetting and you're feeling upset or activated now um, and you're feeling like you're at risk, call Lifeline 131114. Mm. You can also call 1-800-RESPECT, which is a helpline about sexual assault. Mm-hmm. There is a centre against sexual assault, which yeah. you can also contact if you're wanting some specific therapeutic support or you can speak to your therapist or if you don't have a therapist, your GP, mm-hmm. who can potentially refer you to somebody. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you like our show, please rate and review it. We can be contacted at twoshrinkspod at gmail.com. You can check out our website, twoshrinkspod.com. It's got a list of our back issues and information about Amy and I. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a real pleasure to talk about this with you and i'm going to leave amy with the final word we know that there'll be people listening who've held on to a secret like this for many years who haven't been able to find the words or the right person to tell we're not going to say that it's easy but telling someone safe like a friend family member or psychologist can be the start of moving through it of releasing some of that shame of feeling more in control safer holding it all yourself is exhausting and telling someone safe starts to lighten the load It's an honour to be trusted with someone's story. Whilst we hear some awful things, we also get the joy of seeing those same people expand, feel more comfortable in themselves, in their bodies, start to build relationships with people who love and respect them. You and your story are not a burden and you don't have to hold it all on your own. Been travelling these wide roads for so long My heart's been far from you Ten thousand miles gone Oh, I want to come near and give you Every part of me But there's blood on my hands And my lips are unclean in my darkness, I remember Mama's words reoccur to me. Surrender to the good law, and it wipe your slate clean. Take me to your river. I wanna go.
Please let me know Take me to your river 